You're on the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman with you and Anna Dean and Peter Dunn joining me today. First up, bullying in politics. Back in the news, Labour MP Gaurav Sharma has made accusations of bullying and gaslighting within Parliament and claimed an unnamed Labour MP and a parliamentary staff member had misused taxpayers' money. Parliamentary service has determined no spending rules were broken. At least three staff who worked with him claimed they raised concerns about Sharma. And in a social media post at 3pm today, Sharma claimed he had provided screenshots of messages to the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff when he made complaints about bullying in December last year. But Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, she says things have changed since the 2019 Francis report on bullying. Now, that was a sweeping review that found Parliament was a toxic workplace with a systemic, systematic bullying and harassment issue. Now, a short time ago, Prime Minister Ardern fronted questions about bullying among MPs in her caucus. If you're asking about whether or not other staff feel they have been bullied, I have not had that raised with me and I'll, and I'll allow MPs who, were, uh, who did comment when asked that they did not agree that this was a widespread issue. With us is Catherine Delahunty, former Green MP, who raised issues of a toxic workplace and bullying in a play called Question Time Blues. Catherine, kia ora. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Tell us of your time in Parliament. I was reading, reading back on the Francis report, a massive 41% had experienced aggressive behaviour behavior while working at Parliament. Yeah, well, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, Parliament's a bit like a particularly unpleasant boarding school in many ways, and there's a strong hierarchy. And I know that... Um, the Francis report was an attempt to address some of the toxicity and that they're talking about programs for uh, training better behaviour. But there's power issues right across. It's built into the system. And so it's not a surprise to me that this continues to be an issue. Um, in terms of this issue, I mean, the report uh, went on to say MPs were treated like gods with a master-servant relationship. Uh, that's what the report said at the time. On this particular issue here, and of course it's quite nuanced, it's quite complex, and I see that um, the Prime Minister is uh, and the caucus are going to meet over this situation. Um, how do you read it? Well, I think what we've got to get our heads around is that it's quite possible for someone to be a not particularly great employer, and MPs often aren't because of the enormous pressure on them, and they take it out on the staff. It's always been like that. It's not appropriate behaviour, but also that there is bullying of MPs who are backbenchers who don't have the power um, in the hierarchy. So I think it's it's endemic right throughout the system. And so rather than personalising it and deciding who's a good person and who's right. a bad person, we need to look at the power dynamics inside that place. And parliamentary services may be trying, but often I feel that they are caught up like everyone else and what is supporting you know, the whips in the party, supporting the powerful, uh, rather than hearing the voices of people with less power, be they a backbench MP or be they staff who are particularly vulnerable. And I really still think there's too much power and too much respect given by virtually everybody except the, uh, except the vulnerable who, who don't have a voice. All right, our um, panellists will have uh, views and questions as well. Sure, I know that Peter will, but let's start with Anna. Yeah, it's very interesting to be on a panel with two former MPs um, today. Um, one thing I've really picked up on is that 
I don't think that people outside Parliament have much understanding of what parliamentary services actually does versus how mm. much control actual individual parties have over their um, their their MPs. And would you speak to that, Catherine? I mean, you, you mentioned parliamentary services before, and how much of this is their responsibility? Well, I think theoretically a lot of it is their responsibility because they employ the staff and they're meant to try and exercise a positive influence over MPs. So they produced in my time a video about, you know, how you can manage staff for, for new MPs. But um, it's not just new MPs who behave badly towards staff. It's actually some very experienced MPs I've seen bad behaviour. And I think it's because people believe in the hierarchy. They support the hierarchy and they feel that the staff are there to serve them. And I don't think parliamentary services talks enough about the word power. We need to name this as a power issue and really acknowledge that, that we are utterly dependent when we're MPs upon the hard work of, of our staff from the juniors right through and that the buck stops with us when there's difficult situations. It doesn't stop with them and really take responsibility. I don't think parliamentary services pushes as hard on that issue of power as they need to. And certainly some of the MPs have a very um, bizarre idea of what is a good way to treat people who work in your office. And you would never see that in the open because we can be very charming and very articulate and, and appear to be very caring. But when the stress comes on, the people around them cop it. No. Peter? I think there are two aspects to this question, actually. I think that Catherine's absolutely right in respect of parliamentary services' responsibilities towards the staff who work in the building. I think the political parties themselves have also got to accept responsibility in terms of their particular MPs. And it goes back in many cases to their selection in the first place. You know, I think we've we've got into a period now where all political parties, to a greater or lesser extent, have become seduced by the impressive curriculum vitae that someone might have as being a good qualifier for Parliament without any great sense of whether they would fit into the parliamentary environment. I don't mean apply necessarily, but that should be able to work in the particular environment that Parliament creates. And we've seen examples just of late where clearly that hasn't happened and there have been significant consequences. Now, the parties end up sort of trying to put those MPs out on the edge, as we've seen with Dr Sharma at the moment, somehow it's all his fault. Actually, no, the party's got to accept a much greater responsibility for what's happened uh, than just simply putting it all back on him or, in the National Party's case, back on Sam Uffendale to, to, to explain themselves. I mean, the parties selected these people in the first place. They have a responsibility for their pastoral care and for ensuring that they behave in a way that's appropriate once they're elected. Catherine? Yeah, well, I kind of agree with some of that. <laughs> um, I, but I don't think it's a new thing. I don't think in the past... Oh, it's not new, had... no. No, we've always had very weird people mm. in Parliament. Let's be honest. We've, it's mm. not the individuals. It's the system that makes it weird. And it's a system of power over. It's about valuing the people at the top of the heap, not valuing people at the bottom. So it's actually it, the best people might go in there with the best of intentions, but it becomes extremely toxic because people are competing all the time for their place. It's all about um, an adversarial approach. The Westminster system is not a human system. It's perhaps one of the, the least effective ways to resolve anything, let alone look after countries, and it needs serious change. And so I'm not sure that, you know, in numbers of reviews of inquiries, let alone targeting of individuals, and that's where I agree with Peter, it's not about that, um, 
I don't think that's the solution. I think we actually have a structural problem built into Westminster democracy, which is adversarial and about power over. And I think Peter's right that inside parties, it's not just parliamentary services, inside party, whips and front bench and senior cabinet ministers have a lot of power to control the narrative. And if people step outside the narrative, they, they rightly or wrongly, whether they do it in a way that is acceptable or not, um, there's, a, there's a level of desperation that takes place sometimes because people feel quite powerless. And they are, because parties keep the lid on what's really, really going on. And we've all seen that. Just listen to you this. Take, you take someone, like, doc, you take someone yeah. like Dr. Sharma, young guy, highly qualified medical practitioner, Fulbright scholar, MBA from an American university, not unreasonably expecting to come to Parliament to make a mark. And suddenly it hits this hierarchical system which says, you actually start at the bottom and you've got to work your way up no matter how qualified or experienced you might be. Some people say, okay, that's the game, I'll play it that way. Others become impatient and uh, you know, lash out. So, again, it's a matter of personal style, okay. but the system is oppressive in that sense. And we can't speculate too much on the particular individuals because uh, they will um, – I'm sure things will come out uh, in the fullness of time. I'm just – I'm just um, – uh, amazed, Catherine, because I can recall the France report when it came out, and it was, it was quite extraordinary. Not too long ago, 80-plus recommendations came out of it. Yeah. Uh, Parliament, you know, now has a code of conduct. They'll soon have an independent watchdog to investigate politicians' behaviour. But here's the number of it. At a crucial time when we want people, also young people, to get into politics and they hear this sort of stuff going on. This is what you can expect in this sort of bear pit. And don't you think that as an aspirational politician or a staffer, it is really unfortunate that this is in the news? Well, I think it's better that it's talked about than ignored. Sure. I hate to think of young people coming in there thinking, this is a place where I'm going to be nurtured and cared for and supported in my role. And there are people who do that, yeah. but it's not the norm. You know, my office was definitely a safe place for staff because I actually believed that I was utterly dependent on them. I had never managed people. I only had relationships. And if you see it as about relationships rather than about power and you recognize your own power, that you must make a safe space for working for your working staff, that's a good thing. But overall, the system itself is oppressive. And I think young people, um, new people going to work there need to realise the parliamentary system is deeply flawed and toxic. It always has been, like I said in my play. It's all about power over and beating the enemy. It's all about fighting a war and almost anything goes in that war. And, and that is never going to be a good working environment. Catherine Delahunty, Kiara, thank you for your time. Uh, Catherine's a former Green MP who raised issues of a toxic workplace and bullying. Uh, in a play, it was called A Question Time Blues. And I know, Anadine, you sort of been on the panel before and actually really seriously thought about um, the political uh, arena. Uh, less national politics, but more local body, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was completely put off by the number of, of reports that were coming out from particularly women um, and, uh, you know, who are putting themselves up for office and then being, you know, receiving death threats and all sorts of online harassment. So there's also that side of thing, which is, is really doubling up and and um, making it a very unattractive <laughs> um, place to step into. So, um, I mean, local government, as well as this national level, has, has got a lot of work to do around them. 
19 past four, Anna Dean and Peter Dunn with me on the panel this afternoon. New Zealand has opened to visitors once again, but now Tourism Minister Stuart Nash is drawing criticism for labelling the type of travellers we should be attracting. Speaking at the Tourism Export Council, Nash said that we need to attract, quote, discerning travellers, unquote, rather than backpackers on a shoestring budget. In response, National's Tourism Spokesperson Todd McClay is demanding the Minister take back his comments as it may make these visitors feel unwelcome. To hear another perspective on this, we're joined by Backpacker Youth and Adventure Tourism Association Board Member and Adventure Hostels NZ Managing Director Brent Brett Duncan. Brett, kia ora. Hi, Wallace. How are you? I'm very well. What did uh, Stuart say? Uh, we'll not be seeking to attract those who travel around the country on 10 bucks a day eating two-minute noodles. What do you think? Well, um, I mean, that, that's a group of people who aren't going to spend a lot of money in the country in any given case. But here's the thing with this group of people. That's a very niche within a niche group of people. And these, these kind of travellers, they're going to find their way around the world anyway because they travel that way so they can travel for years and years and years. And it is, it's, it's a very unique style of travel that's not, not for everybody. So it's going to be, you know, dis, discouraged. Well, not promoting to that kind of backpacker is not going to be that detrimental to us. And to be fair to Stuart Nash, he has been, um, he has spoken favorably of the backpacker industry in the past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, backpackers are vastly more than just the $10 a day, two-minute noodle bunches, as Nash is, is um, talking about. Oh, yeah, of course. So but I, he's, he, he has said, hasn't he, that, uh, uh, in fact, for quite a while, it's not a new thing, but he has said he'd unashamedly target the super wealthy. But here you have, I think, as Todd McClay pointed out, you know, you've got about, when, what, 2019, you had around 65,000 backpackers coming to Aotearoa. Um, that's just the working holiday visa makers, uh, probably about uh, three times that uh, for, for just short, shorter term holiday uh, backpackers as well. And uh, they, they do bring a huge amount to the country. And Stuart Nash has acknowledged in the past the, the, the value the backpackers will bring. They get into the regions uh, more readily. They get into the off, in, sorry, into the off seasons. Um, they take up uh, seasonal labour that it is very hard to get Kiwis to uh, to do simply because there's no job security. It's a three or four month gig. Um, they do a lot of the fruit picking and so forth. So there is a lot of value. And on top of that, they actually spend about the same amount per trip as the over 35 age bracket, okay. albeit they do it over a longer period of time. All right, Anna, your thoughts on uh, uh, this? I mean, you're, you, you're from an area that has a lot of uh, backpacking trade. In fact, a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I live in Golden Bay, and um, it's, it's been really noticeable um, without these people around. I mean, selfishly, for me, in some ways, it feels like being in the South Island again in the, in the 1990s. It's been blissful <laughs> driving around, not getting stuck behind camper vans and crapping out 
you know, backpacker type vans and also having the space and the freedom at the beaches. But always am hearing from retail and hospitality uh, friends and, and folk who are who are desperately needing needing workers. Um, but it does raise issues around those those short term workplaces and completely can understand why Kiwis are not not wanting to put their hands up for that job those jobs. So that seems to need a, a look at. But I know um, these people will be welcomed back. And, and again, I'm really interested in the discerning travellers um, and in that New Zealand brand that we are presenting overseas. I mean, I know I'm getting contacted by a lot of entrepreneurial types and, right. and people that are looking to New Zealand going, wow, have to get there, been the safest place in the, in the world during, during COVID. Um, how can I come and get, get in and, you know, work my way to getting a, a proper visa? So I think we're going to see a really interesting new class of traveler coming through that's kind of younger and more entrepreneurial en masse. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time when, when these people start to arrive again this summer. Stay there, Brett. We'll get Peter. Yeah, I think that um, Anna's point is quite interesting because I think what we're going to see is that new category of tourists that she's described, and it may be that in time they replace the backpackers because the backpackers have moved into that group themselves. But otherwise, I thought the minister's comment was rather unfortunate. I think it's, you know, the, the backpackers add quite a lot of flavour to the country. They, they they drift around the regions, they pick up casual jobs, they do all sorts of things. And I think New Zealand just generally appreciate them and learn from them. So I just think it was a silly comment made perhaps for a headline. Brett? Yeah, I mean, to build on that further, we've got some data that show that 48% of the working holiday visa makers that come to New Zealand actually take seasonal jobs in hospitality, accommodation and retail, you know, um, jobs that aren't that, you know, um, as I said before, that short-term gigs, etc. Uh, so what that really does show that um, they're not really taking jobs from Kiwis. And when you've got 65,000 of them coming in, that's the, that's the population of a, of, a, of a city. So when you put that many people into a country and they're working and they're earning their money and they're spending it back in the economy, that's a lot of, that's a lot of dough that's going back into the New Zealand economy without actually taking that many jobs away from Kiwis. Um, but also to touch on the other point, the, the backpackers have always been evolving. The backpacker themselves have always been evolving. And now what we're seeing is the rise of digital nomads. So... Um, yes, we are going to see an evolution and the backpacking industry will keep changing as it always has. But the next 10 years, uh, especially on lessons learned through COVID, where you can work remotely more readily, we're going to start, we're already starting to see people turn up with their laptops, they stay a bit longer, they can work on the go. And um, that's, that brings a whole new breed of, of different kind of traveller as well. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a changing uh, game. Very interesting stuff. Brett uh, Kiora, that's uh, Brett Duncan there, uh, Backpacker Youth and Adventure Tourism Association board member. Uh, quite a, a bit of response on this, actually. Someone says, oh, I was a backpacker around the world on my OE in the 80s and now a discerning traveller spending more. I mean, seriously? Someone says backpackers have parents and family and friends who are at a different stage of life and are influenced by the enthusiasm the backpackers exude. Let them be cheap advertisements for uh, New Zealand. 26 past four, you're on the panel. Anna Dean and Peter Dunn are with me and loving your feedback and coming to this afternoon. Now, Etiquette Mondays. A listener got in touch with a problem that said, this needs answering. If I stay at someone's house and there's a squeegee in the shower, am I required to squeegee down the shower? 
or would it be rude if they didn't? Big response. Someone says, uh, Wallace, if you go to a friend's for a barbecue in the backyard and they have a lawnmower, should you mow the lawn? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ben says, always squeegee the shower if you want to be welcome next time. Uh, I run an Airbnb in a My House manual and a note beside the shower. I ask my guests to squeegee down the shower. They all do. I haven't had any complaints. And with us this afternoon is Kaz from Gisborne. Kaz, welcome to the panel. Thank you very much. Now, what do you think on this? If I come to your uh, house to stay, Kaz, you've got a squeegee in the shower. Do I have to squeegee it down for you? No, of course not, because I, I, if I had a vacuum cleaner in the sitting room, I wouldn't expect you to do the vacuuming. Exactly. Like the lawnmower, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's see what our panellists think. Um, Kaz, stay there. Anna? Well, I'm actually house-sitting a house at the moment that has a squeegee uh, in the shower, so I have made a conscious decision to respect that placement and to use it. Um, but the question I always have is, if you're doing the like the Wim Hof cold water technique and you finish your your shower with a dash of cold, actually standing there and then squeegeeing when you're freezing is is not a not a great time. Terrible. So terrible. What do people suggest around that? I mean I, I always have yeah, it's hard to know when to squeegee. Yeah. Kaz, to those that say uh, a lot of people are saying uh, Wallace, that is just so rude, it is so disrespectful. If the squeegee's there, it's for a reason. It sends a message. It's just a takes one minute, sure, you might get cold. Um but it's upon you to make the shower clean again. What would you say? No, I don't think so. If I had a guest coming to my house and um, the squeegee isn't in the shower, it's somewhere else. So I wouldn't expect them to um, do any any sort of any housework whatsoever. Perhaps if um, I was house sitting, I'd certainly make sure that the um, house was you know tidy and what have you when I left. But if I'm a guest, and I wouldn't expect my my guest to run around with, um, you know, the squeegee mop or what have you, mop the floor if it was just because it was in the corner. And also, um, I mean, if the toilet brush was handy and, you know, you sort of leave a couple of remnants, of course you're going to swirl the toilet brush around, but you're certainly not going to squeegee the shower because what about the basin? You might have, you know, (laughs) you might have left your toothpaste in the basin. Okay, well, we'll get rid of that. It's never ending. But, um, But as a guest... I certainly would hope that my, my friends wouldn't expect me to to do the housework while I was there. Peter Dunn. Well, I'm, I'm just amazed by this because it just seems to me that if you're using a bathroom and you do sort of have some toothpaste uh, left in the basin or whatever in the shower, you clean it up. I just seem to think that's a given. And, and I'm stunned that there should even be a debate about it, whether it's a squeegee or just even drying off the shower. It just seems to me that's yeah, no, be, that's the, the a reasonable thing to do. Kaz? Yeah, of course, the tooth- toothpaste, you, you'll definitely get rid of that. And any toilet remnants, of course, you'll get rid of that. But yeah. you, you're not going to be squeegeeing and jolly washing the windows no. while you're at a guest place. No, no. no. I wouldn't expect I beg, that. I beg to differ. 
Oh, okay. Well, Kaz, oh, well, lovely, exactly. lovely to have you all. We're on the same page, Kaz. I look forward yes, to coming around exactly. to your house one day, having a shower and not having to squeegee it. Well, well, maybe the member of the panel can come here and I'll leave all my my instruments out on the floor and he can do the mopping and the vacuuming and the, and the shower. <laughs> do you hear that, Peter Dunn? Yeah, that wasn't what we were talking about. Um, I think no. it's a difference. All right. Hey, Cass, thanks for being okay. with us. Um, thank need- you very much. Needless to say, okay, thank, uh, you. thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, Cass. Um, needless to say, most, most people, oh my goodness, look at the feedback on this. Go, Peter Dunn. You can stay at my house anytime. Uh, <laughs> says someone, I've never heard of this absurdity. Peter Dunn is absolutely right. Bizarre times. I agree with Peter Dunn. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National, Anna Dean and Peter Dunn with me as time. For headlines.